You're probably thinking, Across the Ages have been covering some pretty hard-hitting topics recently. I wonder what Natalie is going to talk about today. Hats! Big hats, pointy hats, expensive hats, voluminous hats and dangerous hat accessories. They all have one thing in common. They're jazzy. I'm Natalie. This is Across the Ages. One of the oldest depictions of a hat is on an ancient figure known as the Venus of Willendorf. She is just over 11 centimetres tall and is estimated to be made 25,000 years ago. Willendorf is a village in Austria and she was found in 1908 during excavations by archaeologists. She is paleolithic, that's thick with two C's, loving life and wearing a hat. Previously, archaeologists thought that this was hair, but now reckon that this is indeed a hat and was probably weaved. Bear in mind that in the Paleolithic, people were hunter-gatherers who had not yet discovered farming. If you could miraculously communicate with Paleolithic people and be like, ah, oh, so what kind of crops do you grow? They'd be like, mate, what are you on about? Let's go catch some fish with our stone stabby things on sticks. That's how old this Venus is. You might remember from my very first episode that the oldest known pair of shoes belonged to Utsi the Iceman. Well, guess what? One of the earliest known hats also belonged to our old pal Utsi. He was an absolute trendsetter. His body was found frozen in a mountain between Austria and Italy, where he has been hanging around since about 3250 BCE. His hat was made of bearskin with a thin leather chin strap and made of several hides stitched together. Essentially looking like one of those classic Russian fur hats without the ear flaps. If you asked a kid to draw a fur hat, this is probably what it'd look like. I don't know about you, but upon reading the name Witches of Sebeshi, I was already fully on board with whatever the article had to tell me. Thought to be buried around 2000 BCE, two mummies were found almost perfectly reserved in a high gorge in the lost town of Sebeshi, which was an important town on the Silk Road in what is now China. They were found by archaeologists wearing 60 centimetre long pointy hats with wide brims. Now this is cool. The hats were made of woolen felt, and it's thought that these massive impractical hats were a sign of social status. Much like the Krakow shoes of episode one, these were kept upright by being stuffed, in this instance with reeds or maybe a stick. One of the mummies had a big-ass glove on one hand, suggesting that she might have been hunting with a raptor. The nearest I've been to looking this witchy is probably at a roller-skating Halloween party in the 90s, the pointed hat accompanied by a black bin-bag cape. I have pictures should anyone request one. There's not a huge amount of information on this, but one thing that I really enjoyed while I was researching was a thesis by Catherine Longfellow called Threads of the Dead, an Investment in Appearance in Ancient Central Asia, which is the best name for a thesis ever, Threads of the Dead. The fact that these burials had any sorts of clothing in them indicated status, because this is a time when physical possessions were few and essential only. Other graves from a similar culture found about 350 miles away from a people buried in Churchin also had hats as grave goods, but they were nowhere near as ostentatious. So what's going on? According to Longfellow, textile goods alone, including hats, was a good enough status symbol for a lot of people. The people from Churchin were thought to be nomadic, so the less they carried the better. 
The word Sebeshi means origin of water, and there is still an oasis located near the cemetery, indicating that this group of people didn't need to move around, so didn't need to keep their possessions light. This meant that every bugger had a hat, so the elite needed to create these ridiculous hats to differentiate themselves from the peasants, something we will see over and over again whenever we talk about any item of clothing throughout history. Sixty centimetre tall hats? Surely no one in antiquity could best that. Of course they can! And they weren't just black, they were gold! Not just gold coloured, actual gold. Four golden hats have been discovered in Europe and date from before 1000 BCE, which was during the Bronze Age. So who the hell is fancy enough to wear these hats made of pure gold? Nope, this time, for once, it's not royalty. It was priests who would wear the golden wizard hats that stood up to 90 centimetres tall. Take that, witches of Sebeshi. The golden wizard hats are decorated with symbols of the sun and moon. Please, please, please go and put golden wizard hat into Google and tell me this not... <laughs> tell me this does not give a new meaning to the name dickhead. <laughs> Oh, the wearers were star trackers with the ability to analyse the sky and to predict the weather. There was no Met Office website at the time, and this was way before the local weather segment, though I do think this should be a new trend for weather broadcasters, though I don't know whether their wage would cover it. The priests were referred to as king priests and were thought to have magical powers. It is from this early use of conical hats that led to the traditional star-covered wizard's hats that we now recognise in costumes today. One of these hats specifically is called the Berlin Cone. How many suns and moons do you reckon it has? A. 50 B. 622 C. 1739 D. 1063 I'm going to give you five seconds to guess. The answer is C. It's 1739. It seems a bit much just for decoration, you might say, but these actually turned out to be representative of the lunar solar calendar. The summer and winter solstices were important religious events for the Bronze Age people, so having this incredibly beautiful object carved with astronomical knowledge made it a pretty important object to these societies. The specific Bronze Age culture that these hats are associated with is called the Urnfield culture. They were knocking about in Central Europe, cremating the dead and burying the urns with their ashes in fields, so the name makes total sense, if a little unimaginative. The hats themselves are made of single pieces of gold sheets hammered to a thickness of between 0.25mm and 0.6mm. 0.25mm is one-tenth of a width of spaghetti. These poor buggers didn't even have iron, and they hammered gold sheets into hats that were 10% of the width of spaghetti. If you want to do it the other way around, that's two and a half times the thickness of a human hair. I want a massive dick-shaped hat and I want it made of gold. You thought you'd heard just enough about tall hats, but you're in luck because you're about to hear about another one. We're hanging out in Mongolia for a bit, learning about a hat called the Bokta, which was first recorded in the 13th century. When I was researching my what happened around the world in the 13th century bit, it was literally, Chinggis Khan becomes Great Khan of the Mongols, the Mongols invade this place, the Mongols invade this place, the Mongols smash this country. They literally dominated the East and then Europe, sweeping across continents on their horses. They had the largest connected empire in history, covering almost 20% of the world, which equates to about 9.2 million square miles, which is insane. 
To understand Mongolian hats, we should probably learn a little bit about their society. In Mongolian culture, men and women's clothing were more or less exactly the same in design, appearance and function, reflecting thousands of years of more or less equal rights between the genders. I'd like to say good guy Mongolians, but I can't quite manage it. The bokta were worn by women, specifically noble women, and they were adorned so that they could easily be identified in the field from a distance as not a bloke. Now, I realise I've not even bothered describing it for you. Think of a periscope in a submarine. Now, make it square-edged. Make it red. Make it over a metre tall. Stick a peacock feather on top of it. Now you're getting the idea. The hat frame was made of willow branches, covered with felt, rising in a narrow column. The higher the rank the woman held, the higher the hat. The peacock feathers might be replaced by the humble mallard feather, which, even though are quite common enough to take for granted... They have some pretty banging colouring. They were attached loosely so they could flutter in the wind while she rode across the steps. Magnificent. Now, I want you to picture a child's princess costume. I'm willing to bet that it has a pointy cone hat with long streamers coming out of the back. The pointy hat comes from European medieval noblewomen, when at the time was officially called the steeple henin. Most commonly worn in Burgundy and France by women of the nobility, we start seeing women sporting this pointy boy from about 1430 onwards but it did get popular later, spreading across the rest of Europe. Typically, the henin was up to 45 centimetres high, but as we heard in the shoe episode, the Italians liked to take fashion to the extremes, with heights around 75 centimetres. The hat had a veil that usually emerged from the top of the cone and was allowed to fall onto the woman's shoulders. They were made of brilliantly coloured silk, or of gold or silver tissue, and were extremely lightweight and fragile. What an original idea, right? Wrong! These henins that are so associated with Europeans were inspired by the bokters of the Mongolian women. They were seen as strange and exotic and, like so many other influences, made their way into the fashion of the European elite. One of the big differences was that the hat was worn on the crown rather than going straight up like a bokter. Unfortunately, in Europe, peacock feathers weren't quite as easy to get hold of, so these were substituted by fabric instead. European noble women did hats well, but Christ, the Mongolians wore them better. Please fasten your seatbelts, for we have arrived in the Ottoman Empire in the early 16th century. 16th century sees the first flushing toilet introduced in England, and Galileo invents the thermometer. At the time, the Ottoman Empire ruled over about 25 million people, which is the equivalent to the current population of Australia. There or thereabouts, anyway. Between 1520 and 1566, the empire was ruled by Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent. And goodness me, I can see why he's described as so. Could it be his shoes? His ability to dance? Surprise, it was his hat. Just kidding, it wasn't really his hat, but obviously this is a hat episode, so that's what I'm going to hype. But more on that in a second. Suleiman was a pretty great sultan. He personally instituted major judicial changes to to society, education, taxation and criminal law. His reforms harmonised the relationship between the two forms of Ottoman law, sultanic and religious. He loved writing poetry and became a great patron of culture, overseeing the golden age of the Ottoman Empire in his artistic, literary and architectural development. The Sultan also played a role in protecting the Jewish subjects of his empire for centuries to come. On the suggestion of his Jewish doctor, the Sultan issued a royal decree formally denouncing blood libels against the Jewish people. Blood libels were anti-Semitic accusations that Jewish people were using Christian children's blood for rituals. It'd be laughable if it wasn't so dangerous for them. 
Suleiman enacted new criminal and police legislation, prescribing a set of fines for specific offences, as well as reducing the instances requiring death or mutilation. So what's all this about his hat? Or let's be a bit more specific and say his turban. Think of a garlic bulb. Now make it about the size of a space hopper. Make it linen and stick it on a sultan's head. This was called the royal turban. The turban was likely designed to make the wearer appear larger and more imposing, an Ottoman version of dick swinging, really. Despite its enormous proportions, the royal turban wasn't particularly heavy, since they were constructed by wrapping several layers of linen over a light wooden frame. Though the frame was most likely padded, this turban would have been uncomfortable to wear, because who wants to wear a space hopper on their head? In 1571, a sumptuary law was passed by Elizabeth I designed to support the British wool trade. Sumptuary laws are laws that try to regulate consumerism. Black's Law Dictionary defines them as laws made for the purpose of restraining luxury or extravagance, particularly against inordinate expenditures for apparel, food and furniture. The law ordered the wearing of a woollen hat on Sundays and holidays for all males above six years old. Unless you're a rich bloke, of course, who could do basically whatever they fuck they wanted. Not at all like the rich of today. The fine for each day that you are found not wearing a hat was three shillings and four pence. Loads of people thought that this law was a load of old shit, so it was repealed in 1597. But bear in mind that's over 20 years later, so a lot of time to wear a hat. Have you heard of the phrase, as mad as a hatter? Made pretty famous by Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland that features the pretty chaotic mad hatter. The meaning of this phrase is saying someone is insane, but what does that have to do with hatters? It's all to do with the process of how hats were made from the 17th century all the way up until 1960. Hats are often made of felt, and the poor hatters suffered from long-term exposure to vapours from the mercury they used in the wool process whilst felting. This exposure caused behavioural changes such as irritability, low self-confidence, depression, shyness, and in some extreme cases, delirium, personality changes, and memory loss. Despite doctors' warning about mercury as early as 1757, felt hats were processed with mercury for nearly 200 years until hats fell out of fashion in the 1960s. By 1910, the monstrous wide-brimmed cartwheel hat had reached its peak in size, known also as mushroom hats. It was unlikely that in this era you'd see a woman without a hat, and cartwheel hats were worn by everybody, including maids and aristocrats. They were secured by using massive hat pins, and it was these that became quite the scandal. Hat pins had been around since the 15th century, though of course pins themselves had been knocking about for thousands of years. The turn of the century saw a bit of a change in women's position in society. The suffragette movement was well underway by this point, and women were no longer content with being tied to the kitchen stove. However, women being outside unaccompanied led to a surge in street harassment, leaving them vulnerable to scumbags. Have you ever been harassed on the street by a bloke demanding you heed their advances? Me too. Well, these Victorian women took matters into their own hands and reached into their hats. The pins that they were grabbing were anything but small, and hat pins could reach up to 30 centimetres in length. Not about to put up with being harassed in the street, women simply started stabbing harassers with their hat pins. 
This caused a lot of panic in society, with newspapers reporting on women using their hatpins to stab their assailant in the arm, slash him in the face, or otherwise threaten to kill him. Women were protecting their rights to exist in public spaces, and this was making the men of the time uncomfortable. Editorials in newspapers started cropping up about how women were attacking defenceless men, and that to avoid street harassment, women should perhaps dress more modestly, or better yet, not leave the house. A rhetoric still echoed by some parts of society. Legislation to regulate hatpin length was introduced in several cities, and motions to ban them outright were discussed. The hatpin as a hidden stabbing device was so effective for self-defence that manuals were published on proper usage. Confession time. My head is tiny. Like, I'm basically walking around with a pee for a noggin. This pretty much means that the only hats that fit me are beanies, which are great, but don't quite exude the same respect as a bokter or a royal turban. Across history, hats were essential items of clothing, and it communicated many things about your status and position in society. It's only a relatively recent thing, particularly in Europe, that most people don't wander about with hats on, and I think this is a crying shame. And that's your lot today, history fans. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Be sure to share with other history nerds if you enjoyed it, and to get a shout-out in a future episode, leave a five-star review on iTunes. Reviews really help the podcast grow, and more importantly, I like to hear people say nice things about me. One of my big hype witches, Archerfish Empress on Twitter says, Natalie once again killed it on this week's Across the Ages episode. If you haven't listened to it yet, go do it right now. Renegade Women Across the Ages Part 2 is just as brilliant as last week's Part 1. Archfish Empress is a hat-wearing icon, and I dedicate this entire episode to you and your jazzy hats. Thank you for always hyping up each and every episode that I make. To get in touch, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore Across the Ages, or you can like my page on Facebook at Across the Ages Pod. Keep an eye out for the next episode where I'll be delving into another topic, Across the Ages.